I'm Kim Zuli. I'm a Vice President and Community Affairs Officer, which means that I have responsibility for community affairs and economic education across our district. And this is one of the events that we've held every year, and it's, it's great to have you back. All of you are in the important position of helping to shape the next generation of leaders and equipping students with the knowledge to successfully engage as consumers and perhaps economists in our future economy, maybe even monetary policy. Got a few laughs out there. <laughs> Come on, some of you must have more promising students than that. As a former professor of economics, both micro and the very dreaded macro in the, the morning, I know how critical it is to have the right tools and a lot of tools to keep the students engaged and learning. I've never taught high school economics, but I did teach freshmen. And I'm not sure there's a great deal of maturing going on in that summer in between high school and freshmen. So maybe I had some of your students. I taught at the University of Kentucky and the University of Wisconsin and William and Mary. So perhaps I had some of them in my class. If your students have never told you how much they appreciated your effort, let me say that as a teacher of your former students, I certainly appreciated it. The AP students were always more engaged, and at the very least, they were less fearful of economics. So good job, all of you. I hope that, we hope, over the next couple of days, you find inspiration, a time to sit back and remember why you're doing this and, and learn new approaches, not only from the speakers, but from the peers from across the country. How many of you are new to this conference? Great, great. Sitting by new people at your table? So you're already, no, just one new person. <laughs> well, I hope, get out there, meet new people. That's what you need to do. So enjoy yourself. Jeff has a long and distinguished bio, but in the interest of time, I'm just gonna cover a few of the highlights. So he's born in Kentucky, raised in New Jersey. He received his bachelor's in economics from Franklin and Marshall and his PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He taught economics at Purdue and William and Mary. He's done some substitute and real teaching of high school or middle school? High school? Middle school. Um, yes. So he really has the street cred. Uh, that's what made him the economist that he is today. You can't put it over on middle schoolers or other bank presidents, huh, So he joined the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond as a research economist in 1989. He became research director in 1999, and he was named president in 2004. Jeff. Thank you, uh, Kim, uh, for that introduction. Uh, so I've, I've actually left my middle school teaching uh, experience off of uh, the official biography that appears on the website of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, and Kim seems to have uncovered this part of my employment history. Um, I, I'm not sure it would give me much credibility if you knew how well I did at it, which was not very at all. Um, had no, um, I, I was an economics major. It's my first job out of college, actually. Um, I had uh, no training in education, no education courses at all. Someone called me on uh, August 15th and said someone quit. <laughs> and uh, I remember, what I, one, one of the things I remember most was how many um, other teachers at the school uh, thought I was a student. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, I didn't have much credibility back then at it, uh, and I don't now. I did come away with it uh, from that experience with a deep, deep uh, appreciation of uh, the serious uh, professional commitment it takes to succeed uh, as a teacher of our young people uh, and uh, what an important uh, professional craft that really was. Um, so my hat's off to you, uh, even though maybe high school years are a little more pleasant and a little easier than those middle school years. Uh, my hat's off to you, and, and uh, it, that just um, uh, increases my enthusiasm for what we do to, to try and help you do a better job at what you do. I hope the, the days uh, together here, um, the next couple of days, are constructive and useful uh, for you. For more than a decade now, uh, the uh, Richmond Fed has worked together with the Powell Center for Economic Literacy, um, and uh, in particular on this um, biannual conference. You know, our purpose uh, is to help uh, enhance your ability to teach students uh, economics and, and as well to broaden your perspectives on uh, current economic issues in, of the day. And that's what my talk will be about here tonight. As you know, um, the past few years have been exceptionally challenging for the Federal Reserve. Uh, and the challenges, I'll say, have abated less rapidly than I had hoped. <laughs> over the last couple of years um, as this economy enters the sixth quarter of a recovery, a recovery that's going uh, disappointingly slowly um, for uh, many. Um, tonight what I want to do is discuss the monetary policy challenges uh, we face, but in light of the scholarly nature of the audience I have here before me, um, I'm going to do so by drawing on um, some an illuminating episode in our history uh, from half a century ago. As usual, I have to do this disclaimer. Um, if you were here two years ago, you've heard this. Um, if you've heard anyone else in the, from the Federal Reserve speak, you've heard this as well. Um, the views I express are my own and do not necessarily reflect the thinking of other colleagues of mine on the Federal Open Market Committee. So, uh, to begin, uh, ec economists use a a wide range of uh, economic statistics to define um, and study the business cycle. Uh, the official dating of recessions by the National Bureau of Economic Research, this is the entity that does these things, is based on looking at a pattern of weakening or strengthening of a broad array of indicators. But for most people, the single most salient uh, measure of the state of the economy is the unemployment rate. This measure is one that people can relate to how they feel about the security of their own job, uh, if they don't have a job, um, and the security of their income prospects going forward. And as a result, the unemployment rate can have a very powerful effect on the economic and political mood of a nation. The unemployment rate is currently very high. Uh, this shouldn't be news to this audience, although it's come down a bit from its peak of over 10% uh, during the recession. It's remained over 9.5% for longer than at any time uh, since World War II. The consensus outlook uh, among professional forecasters is for a re relatively slow recovery in economic output. Growth in the 25 uh, to 3% range as measured by gross domestic product uh, over the next year or two. Um, and that suggests uh, that um, progress towards more desirable rates of unemployment may continue to be slow for the next year or two. 
maximum employment, just having employment be as large as possible, is one of the Fed's long-term objectives. And it's part of uh, what people call the dual mandate we have from Congress. The other part of our dual mandate, of course, is price stability, keeping inflation low and stable. Inflation has been quite low lately. Overall inflation measured by the best index, the favorite, our favorite index, which is the price index for personal consumption expenditures, uh, measured that way, uh, overall inflation on a year-over-year -year basis has been around 1.5% since the middle of uh, this year. It's been as high as 4.5% recently when energy prices spiked in mid-2008. Been as low as minus a half a percent uh, in mid 2009 as energy prices bottomed out. Core inflation, which is the measure, the version of inflation that strips out the volatile food and energy prices, um, has been less variable uh, with year over year rates of increase over the last two years between 1.8% and the most recent reading of 1.2%. And that's down from around 2.5% uh, in 2008. Most monetary policymakers talk about price stability goals in terms of a low rate of inflation that they would like to see achieved on average over the longer term. If monetary policymakers do their job well, inflation will fluctuate around that rate and deviations will be temporary and hopefully not too large. I've stated my preference in the past, and this goes back five, six years, uh, for a, a target inflation rate of about 1.5%. Many of my FOMC colleagues, however, have stated preferences for inflation to average a bit higher, uh, between uh, 1 and 3 quarters and 2%. This range of views can be seen in the economic projections uh, that are released by the FOMC four times a year. FOMC participants, all the participants in the meeting, uh, submit all the governors and the Federal Reserve Bank presidents are asked to submit their projections for inflation, growth, and the unemployment rate for the next three years um, at four different meetings during the year. We meet eight times a year, so every other meeting we have one of these. The, these are then published with the minutes that go along with that meeting. Uh, so if you want a good economic forecast and you want to know what the Fed's economic forecast is, you can look at that and it gives you some nice little graphs and tables and a lot of pros, but the, the graphs do a good job of conveying uh, where the Fed uh, FOMC participants think the economy's going uh, over the next few years. FOMC participants are also asked to submit their longer-term projections, meaning, and I'll, I'll quote here from the, the phrase that describes it in the publication we put out, the rate to which each variable would be expected to converge over time under appropriate monetary policy and in the absence of further shocks. And that last part's significant, in the absence of further shocks. So, no unexpected surprises. Everything sort of settles down. Oil prices are stable. Um, technology advances at the sort of the average rate. All those things settle down. We're going to get back. To, we're going to smoothly converge to some sort of equilibrium. And what would the value of inflation or unemployment be in, in that longer run um, sort of steady state, as it were? Now, in the case of inflation, these long-run projections are most naturally interpreted as members' views of the average rate of inflation that's most consistent with the Fed's statutory goals. Uh, it's a natural interpretation. Inflation fluctuates around something, and you pick what you think it ought to average in the long run. Now, the longer-term projections for unemployment are harder to interpret. 
It's a little more delicate matter to interpret those. Uh, so some might think of them in terms of a, of a natural rate of unemployment uh, that doesn't change much uh, very, uh, very often. That it, and it's the inflation rate that we, we get to after an expansion, after a recovery from a recession and expansion. Um, others, however, would emphasize that the attainable level of unemployment at any given time, any, any given year, is itself a changing number. And that, especially over the long run, ultimately, ultimately inflation is determined by factors that are beyond the central bank's control. And that's in contrast to the case of inflation, which is entirely, on, the, on a long run basis, under the control of the central bank. It's interesting to note uh, that in the committee's projections released after its June meeting, this is the most recent projections that are available, the range of members' opinion about long-run unemployment is quite wide. So there's a, a lot of different reasonable views uh, one could have about where unemployment is going to be five, ten years from now on average. In contrast, for inflation, the range of variation is notably smaller for the long-range projection than it is for the, the near-term projection of what inflation is going to be over the next year or two. So people are confident about the average rate of inflation far ahead, but they're not that confident about where unemployment might be headed uh, several years from now. Uh, that's a notable, a notable contrast. So given current economic conditions, inflation running below the levels uh, viewed by most policymakers as consistent with their statutory goals, and with unemployment stubbornly high as the economy uh, is recovering only very slowly, the FOMC voted a week and a half ago, this is February, uh, November 3rd, to further expand its balance sheet uh, through the purchase of long-term U.S. Treasury securities. In its statement, the committee noted that progress towards lower employment had been disappointingly slow. That observation makes the important distinction uh, that it is not the high level of the unemployment rate alone that motivated the action, but rather the slow pace of improvement and the belief that further monetary policy stimulus uh, would help the pace of improvement. Now, the minutes of the November meeting aren't out yet. Um, those will, will include uh, the next round of uh, participants' projections. We were asked to submit pro uh, our projections around the last meeting a week and a half ago, and those will be published when the November minutes come out. Um, and they'll provide a, a, f a fuller analysis of um, uh, just what the thinking was that went into this decision, the debates, the elements of the debate within the committee. Um, about this decision. So rather than foreshadow the minutes, uh, which are going to be released on November 3rd, a week from this Thursday, um, I want to use our time together to look back, as I said, a half century ago to another time when the use of monetary and fiscal policy, so all of our macroeconomic tools, to fight unemployment was hotly debated and was an important issue. So let's go back 50 years. Inflation was 1.5%, right where it is today. In fact, inflation averaged just under 1.5% for the six years from January of 59 through December of 1965. During that, that period, inflation never strayed above 1.9% and never fell below a half a percent. Unemployment was also high 50 years ago, although not quite as high as it is now. At the end of the recession of 1960 and the early part of 1961, the unemployment rate topped 7%, which was viewed as high back then. 
At the time, many economists were coming to view 4% unemployment as the benchmark for uh, so-called full employment uh, that macroeconomic policy ought to strive to achieve. That thinking was, was heavily influenced by the work of Paul Samuelson and uh, Robert Solow on uh, the Phillips curve, the trade-off between unemployment and inflation in the United States. They interpreted this empirical correlation in the data between price inflation and unemployment, inflation high, unemployment low, unemployment high, inflation low. Um, they interpreted that empirical correlation as something of a menu for policymakers. In the absence of what they called cost push inflation shocks, such as increases in oil price uh, prices, or they cited um, increases in uh, business and union pricing power. In the absence of those sorts of shocks, lower unemployment could be achieved merely by tolerating a somewhat higher inflation rate over time. The large social costs uh, associated with unemployment were viewed as justifying making maximum employment the primary goal of macroeconomic policy. And that's, what the, that's the way they talked about it back then. The work of Samuelson and Solow was very influential in the Kennedy administration's Council of Economic Advisors, which was led back then by Walter Heller. The 1962 economic report of the president embraced this new view and stated that, and I quote, 4% is a reasonable and prudent full employment target for stabilization policy, on the end of quote. The need for stimulus to reduce unemployment motivated the tax cut, famously proposed by President John Kennedy in the spring of 1963. And after President Kennedy's assassination in November of that year, President Lyndon Johnson pushed for early passage and signed it into law in February of 1964. The Heller-led Council of Economic Advisors uh, argued that it was safe to provide macroeconomic stimulus as long as unemployment exceeded the full employment mark. And they generally opposed Fed tightening at the time until that, until that occurred. Congress also pressured the Fed, arguing that rate increases would vitiate the stimulative effects of the tax cut. The Federal Reserve, led at the time by Chairman William McChesney Martin, he's the guy that authored that quip about taking the punch ball away just as the party gets going. Um, the Federal Reserve then felt interest rates had to rise when growth picked up in order to head off inflationary pressures before they emerged. Um, it, rather than waiting for unemployment to fall all the way to full employment. And that's a, now a widely known, widely accepted strategy, uh, and it's often referred to as preemption. And we used that several times in the 1980s and 1990s um, to nip inflation in the bud, even if in, unemployment wasn't as low as we'd like. Um, there's a good article I can find on our website by Marvin Goodfriend uh, from the 90s that documents uh, the Fed's grappling with these inflation scares, they were called, uh, and acting preemptively. And the, the famous case was 1994. So back to, back to the past here, though. The year 1965 would prove pivotal in U.S. economic history. Inflation registered 1.4% the year before, um, just as the year began. Unemployment rates stood at 5% when the year began. Unemployment fell from 5% to 4% over by the end of the year, while inflation crept up and rose above 2% for the first time in a long time at the beginning of 1966. From there, inflation drifted up over the remainder of the 1960s. It reached 5% at the end of the decade, 
and it wasn't to fall below 2% again until the early 1990s. You all are familiar, of course, with the disastrous inflation experience of the 1970s, when inflation reached double-digit levels on several occasions. Over the course of 1965, there was growing recognition within the FOMC of the need to tighten policy. The administration had begun planning for significant expansion of U.S. armed forces in Vietnam and had no intention of cutting back on Johnson's Great Society programs. The resulting growth in the federal deficit would be inflationary without offsetting restraint from monetary policy. Johnson delayed introducing a tax increase proposal because of opposition in Congress, where some there would prefer to cut spending on social programs rather than enact a tax increase. This left it up to the Fed to check inflation by raising interest rates. But that was met with strong opposition from Johnson, who pressured Chairman Martins over the course of the year to delay any discount rate hike. In November of 1965, Martin felt he could hold off no longer, and the Board of Governors voted to raise the discount rate. This resulted in Chairman Martin's famous visit to Johnson's Texas ranch, uh, where pre the president was recovering from gallbladder surgery, and where LBJ expressed his anger in characteristically strong and personal terms. Inflation steadily deteriorated thereafter, ultimately breaching 5%, as I said, in early 1970. As that happened, the inflation rate that forecasters and market, financial market participants um, expected to prevail gradually rose as well. Unfortunately, the Federal Reserve did not act forcefully during the late 1960s to bring inflation and inflation expectations back down. Johnson's tax increase was not passed until June of 1968, but was expected to have significant contractionary effects, and the Fed was pressured to offset those contractionary effects with easier monetary policy. So that's what happened. The Fed shifted when the tax cuts passed to more easy monetary policy. And in hindsight, the empirical evidence suggests that the, the, tax, cut, the tax increase wasn't as rest restrictive as and uh, restraining as people had thought. Uh, but the monetary policy was more stimulative than people thought. The rise in inflation expectations that occurred thereafter made bringing price stability back again that much more difficult. After Martin retired as Fed chairman in early 1970, near the end of this 69-1970 recession, his successor, Arthur Burns, concluded that maintaining an unemployment rate sufficiently high to bring down inflation would be politically intolerable. So he advocated direct wage and price controls instead. Such a program was adopted by President Nixon in late 1971, but it proved ineffective, as you know, uh, and when it was dismantled, uh, the inflationary spiral resumed. It wasn't until the strenuous efforts of the Volcker FOMC, beginning in late 1979 that, and extending into the 80s, that inflation was brought back under control. And let me note here that a really readable account of all of this um, appears in a book by a, a Richmond Fed economist uh, that I highly recommend. His name is Robert Hetzel. Uh, you can find his name on our website. It's Cambridge University Press. It's a monetary history of the Federal Reserve. Um, and uh, it's excellent, very readable, uh, no equations, um, quite readable account. The history of the pursuit of full employment in the 1960s and 1970s, I think, provides several important lessons for us now. 
The first is the risk of presuming that we know more than we really do about what the unemployment rate can or should be at any point in time. An economy in recession is responding to shocks that have disrupted the normal process of economic growth. The ability of the economy to quickly re-employ its workforce, redeploy resources, uh, depends on the nature of the shocks and the nature of the adjustments businesses and households have to make in order to, as I said, redeploy labor and capital uh, from one sector to another. So, for example, a permanent increase in energy prices is going to shift demand away from energy-intensive sectors whose relative prices are going to go up. Uh, in contrast, the required resource reallocation is going to be real different after something like a collapse in residential construction resulting from a buildup of a substantial oversupply of homes. And that arguably is the situation we find ourselves in now. As a result, because the different nature of the shocks varies across business cycles, historical data, while they're useful for understanding how different parts of the economy have moved together in response to various shocks, are, are but imprecise guides uh, for normative judgments about whether unemployment is too high or too low, uh, given the most recent shocks we've suffered. A second lesson, I think, from, from that episode 50 years ago is the danger of overemphasizing the pursuit of maximum employment. Numerous accounts from participants in the policy deliberations of the 1960s uh, demonstrate that reducing unemployment was viewed as the primary objective of macroeconomic policy and containing inflation was a secondary objective. Moreover, some academic economists at the time advocated a policy framework that implied that any arbitrary unemployment rate could be sustained if society was only willing to tolerate a somewhat elevated inflation rate over time. This is now widely recognized as a fallacy, as was pointed out in 1968 by Milton Friedman, among others. Monetary policy can alter unemployment, but only temporarily. Trying to keep unemployment permanently lower than it otherwise would be, as was the objective in the second half of the 1960s, is a recipe for continually accelerating inflation, an inflation rate that continually rises. A third and related lesson is that it can be very costly to bring inflation down once it's become elevated. As infl the inflation rate creeps up, consumers and businesses can start to believe that monetary policy is going to continue to generate elevated inflation. They then build that into their decision-making, uh, the expectation that inflation is going to continue, and that makes it really hard to get inflation down again. The process of restoring price stability and reestablishing some semblance of monetary policy credibility following the inflationary spiral of the 1970s was a painful and very costly experience for our country. In hindsight, it would have been far better to have prevented the initial upward creep in inflation in the first place. A fourth and final lesson is to avoid entanglements with fiscal policy. Attempting to fine-tune monetary policy to offset shifts in the stance of fiscal stimulus risks subordinating monetary policy to short-run political considerations to the detriment of our independence, our credibility, and the stability of inflation expectations. So 
we may not have learned uh, all the lessons that we can from that period in our economic history. Uh, future research is likely to continue to yield new insights. After all, new insights are continually being produced and have been over the last 10 or 15 years about the Great Depression, which was even longer ago. But there is a broad consensus that the experience of those turbulent times has improved our understanding, uh, both of the limits on the ability of monetary policy to achieve substantial reductions in unemployment and the paramount importance of preventing an erosion of inflation and inflation expectations. These lessons are fully understood by the FOMC, I believe. In his speech in Jackson Hole in August, Chairman Bernanke clearly rejected the idea that the Fed should raise its inflation objective, even temporarily in the pursuit of improved employment outcomes. And the committee's statement on November 3rd confirms this commitment by emphasizing our intent to ensure that inflation remains consistent over time with our price stability mandate. So I'm confident that we can and will avoid the inflation outcomes that resulted from the flawed pursuit of full employment a half century ago. Having said that though, risks remain. I wouldn't be a central banker if I wasn't saying at the end of the speech that risks remain, so I'll say it here tonight. Risks remain especially in this instance, those associated with inadvertently creating the false expectation that the Fed is preoccupied with achieving a specific level of the unemployment rate. Our ability to manage those types of risks is going to depend on how and when we choose to tighten policy, as tighten we must. To wait until unemployment reaches some predetermined level, as the Martin FOMC did in the 1960s, is to mean waiting too long. That strategy proved bitterly disappointing for Chairman Martin and his colleagues, and I expect it would prove disappointing for us as well. At some point in the not-too-distant future, we are likely to face an economy growing in a self-sustaining way, at a higher rate than it's growing now, while the unemployment rate is still relatively high by historical standards. Decisions we make at that time will be the true test of whether we've learned our lessons well. Thank you very much. Once again, I hope you have a very constructive couple of days here, um, and it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I appreciate your attention, and I'd be glad to take a question or two if we have time. discussion of an exit strategy for the Fed's current policy. Is there an exit strategy? Uh, yes, there is. Um, the Federal Reserve has the tools to be able to withdraw the monetary policy stimulus that we've provided. So part of the stimulus we've provided by lowering interest rates to a very low level. Uh, the target for the federal funds rate is between zero and a quarter of a percent. We can raise the target for the federal funds rate. Uh, moreover, in the midst of the crisis, in October of 2008, uh, we obtained authorization to pay interest on reserves. This might sound like a piece of arcana in the, in the banking sector, but it actually is very important for our exit strategy because um, it means that we could raise interest rates even before we've reduced the size of bank reserves in the system to a level uh, that would make reserves stringent enough to drive the, the market rate up. So we can interest, we can influence a, a, a constellation of market interest rates by varying the interest rate we pay on our reserves. 
Moreover, of course, we've provided stimulus by expanding bank reserves. And we did that by buying assets. Um, the assets we've bought trade in fairly liquid markets, treasury securities, even the agency mortgage-backed securities and agency debt we've bought trade in, in fairly active markets and have a wide range of market participants. So our ability to sell that is uh, those, those and drain reserves um, as we do that um, is, uh, un I think, is, is not in question. Um, I think the tricky part is figuring out when and how fast to do it. Um, and there, um, that's a real delicate matter because there's, as I've said before in public, there's, there's always some lingering concern. There's always some pocket of, of, of lagging sectors in the economy. And so <clears throat> as growth picks up, you're always tempted to say, well, let's just wait a little while longer just to see, you know, uh, that these risks dissipate. Um, so it's a delicate matter um, to, to choose the timing. But we have the tools of that, I'm confident. Middle here. I just thank you for um, these comments. It seems to me that the, that the uh, tenor of what you're saying is that this is an area of judgment. Does that imply subjective judgment? I feel sure that you and your colleagues don't really like subjective judgment. To what degree can you objectivize um, data? That's a very good question. So uh, there's no doubt that judgment plays a role in monetary policy. Um, but our judgment is informed by uh, centuries, centuries of economics that's gone before us, and in particular by the application of that economics by um, our very professional and incredibly accomplished staffs uh, around the Federal Reserve System to the policy problem at hand. So there's often a couple of different models that are consistent with the data. Um, these models might give you different predictions for the, the likely effect of a given policy action. Um, often, even within a given model, there's uncertainty about parameter values, uncertainty about structure uh, that, 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 that leaves you not precisely informed about the like likely effects of a given policy in that model. But then you mix that with, there's a couple of different models, a couple of different visions for how this policy is likely to play out. And you get um, a situation where it, reasonable people can, can have different views on um, the likely effects, likely costs and benefits of a given policy. So it's, it's informed. I'd call it informed judgment. Um, I, I wouldn't emphasize the subjective. Um, it's, an, it's judgment that's um, disciplined um, by the, the, the framework of economics that we bring to bear on it, um, and um, disciplined as well by the insights we've been able to glean from uh, the empirical evidence we have available to us. Um, it seems by your comments that um, quantitative easing that the Fed is beginning to undertake would make the bringing in potential inflation much more difficult to uh, halt. Is there a point at which you think that maybe the Fed should stop quantitative easing, or have we passed that point, or what? So at this point, inflation... Um you know, is around one and a half percent, as I said. Some of the monthly no numbers have been lower recently. 
I'm comfortable with where inflation is now. Some of my colleagues would like to see inflation pick up to 2%. Um, and part of the reason for that is that um, you, you all are obviously familiar with the concept of a real inflation-adjusted interest rate. Since we have nominal interest rates down at the, sort of at the floor, a quarter of a percent, as, as low practically as we can make them, raising the, the inflation rate and raising the expected inflation rate would have the effect of reducing uh, effective real interest rates and provide some stimulus via that um, channel. Um, but I'm comfortable with inflation where it is now. Um, there's uh, arguments that have, are, have been made that um, the stimulus, by reducing longer-term interest rates, uh, can have an incremental effect on the path of unemployment and, and growth going forward. Um, and uh, so I, I think the, the risk with regard to inflation, which was at the heart of your question, um, is something it's going to be easier for us to keep an eye on than it was for Chairman Martin and the FOMC in the late 60s. Back then they had one indicator of expected inflation and it was a survey of professional forecasters. Now we've got a zillion surveys. We've got a, a, a collection of surveys of consumers, forecasters, financial market participants about what they expect inflation to be. Plus we have evidence from uh, the market for um, uh, the inflation protected securities that the, the tip securities that the Treasury issues, comparing their yields with the yields on um, plain old vanilla nominal Treasury securities gives you a read of, of financial market expectations about inflation. And, and that's a read that's based on not just people responding to a survey, but people actually plunking money down and making a decision about it tend to put more weight on those. Right now, they're those expectations are at a level consistent with the inflation experience we've had over the last couple of years, which has been you know, around 2% and now a little below that. Uh, so right now it's not giving me discomfort that we have gone or are expected uh, to go too far. There's one in the front here, if you'd like, and then over to the table over there. Yeah, I was just wondering, is this, is this move by the Fed, are you trying to depreciate the currency? I mean, some of us are just worried that this is to depreciate the currency to stimulate exports. What would you say to people who are like, we need to be helping savers and getting those interest rates up instead of necessarily depreciating the currency? Um, so uh, the, the effect of this policy and potential effect of this on the value of the U.S., the foreign exchange value of the U.S. dollar has gotten a lot of in the press in the last couple of weeks, a week and a half since we've uh, announced this move. So it's, it's important to remember that um, in any open economy, monetary stimulus is going to affect the external value of the currency. It's always a component. Now, whether it's a large component or a small component depends on the circumstances, depends on a whole host of factors. But it's it's, it's always going to be a component of monetary stimulus for whatever country engages in, in um, a monetary stimulus. So to, to say that this is aimed at reducing the dollar is, I think, unfair. Um, and uh, to call it manipulation is grossly unfair, I think. This table on that. You mentioned uh, Milton Friedman. And I have a poster in my room that says, How to Stop Inflation. 
and it's Milton Friedman with his finger on the red button of the money machine. <laughs> and I always talk to my students about the bald-headed man who is now dead who wrote a book called Money Mischief. And in that book, he does talk about the problem in terms of manipulating essentially what I would consider quantitative easing. And I have to tell you, I am also a registered representative. I sell 403B plans to teachers, and I am very concerned about future inflation. And I don't, I, I don't, I'm, I'm listening to you trying to assure me about inflation. When I see gas going close to $3 a gallon, and we don't seem to freak out when we're between 250 and three dollars, but in 2008 we were close to 4.15 nationwide. We know that food prices are going up, and there's a lot of reasons why food prices are going up. Sugar's going up, wheat's going up, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I, I, I don't, right now, have any level of confidence. I, I, from what you're telling me, with a fiat currency. All you have to do is look at the record gold prices, right? And look at where oil is headed. How are we going to deal, you know, how do I tell a young teacher to put money in the stock market that could potentially be inflated away? I, I mean, I want, I want some answers here and I'm not hearing it from you. It's a tough question, no doubt about it. So. Um, let, me, let me talk a little bit about Friedman and money and then talk about the risks ahead to inflation. Um, so Milton Friedman is right that monetary mischief is at, at the heart of all uh, bad inflation outcomes. That to some extent it just it can't happen without monetary mischief. Now what he meant was an increase in the money supply um, too large an increase in the money supply. So the, quest, the too large question is a, is a tricky one now. So in, in the fall of 2008, um, there, were, there, were, there were runs on the some of the largest financial institutions in the world, um, in New York, and in Charlotte, in fact. And um, up until that time, the, uh, their liquidity management was to keep a very small amount of reserves on deposit at the Federal Reserve, um, but to keep a lot of liquid securities on their books that they could use to borrow in short-term markets. Moreover, they, they regularly relied on law, a, a lot of short-term commercial paper, short-term borrowing in financial markets, including via repurchase agreements, which is what was the problem with Bayer. So these runs weren't a classic bank run where there's a bunch of people online at, um, you know, it's George Bailey Savings and Loan. Um, these were um, institutional investors calling up and saying, I want you to buy my, this commercial paperback. I have your commercial paper, I want you to buy it back. And, um, or, you know, I have commercial paper that you issued, it's maturing today. I'm not going to roll it over. I'm not going to buy the next batch. I'm out of here. And that, um, that induced some problems. So it's, it was an issue with Wachovia, 
and how they were resolved. It was an issue within Citibank's case. All the institutions then that came through that um, reacted by dramatically changing the way they managed liquidity. And in particular, they built up these fortresses, huge balances of reserves. So this is a long way of saying that we have really good reason to believe that the demand for money shifted in late 2008. Now, uh, one could ask legitimately, how do you know that the demand for money is going to accommodate the increase we're going to generate now? And the answer is, we're not sure. There's some room for uncertainty about that. We will monitor this closely, monitor the effect it has on the banking system, uh, the effect it has on financial markets more broadly, um, because the, 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 the potential mischief it could cause is something that would arise through the banking system, through the money supply. So think about the, the inflationary scenario, the hypothetical inflationary scenario is that banks have all these reserves, they decide to try and lend them out. And they can't all lend them out because we've, the supply is out there. But the process of doing that generates deposits for the banking system, which increases the money supply in the hands of the public, which generates the inflationary pressures we fear. We are monitoring that carefully, um, diligently. We have other tools at our disposal to monitor inflation expectations. I mentioned the tips and survey evidence. We have had instances in the past of inflation scares, of seeing things sort of burble up. So for, uh, I'll cite an example, early 2008, which you cited. I think you mentioned, I think you made reference to that. We had cut interest rates pretty dramatically in January. We stopped in the spring because we saw inflation pick up. We stopped easing policy for several months. Then the thing broke, prices, commodity prices came down, and we saw weakness building up over the summer and we began cutting interest rates some more. So we have the wherewithal, we have the focus and the commitment to do that. Um, you know, can I promise nothing bad could possibly happen? I can't, but we're doing the best we can. Um, and uh, it, what we're doing has risks. Not doing anything would have risks. Um, it's, it's legitimate to take a stance of um, serious vigilance, though. So I'm not going to tell you to... Um, you know, take a hot toddy and, and, and go to bed. Uh, you know, keep watching us. You keep watching us, okay? Sorry I can't prove it to you, but that's how I see it. Some critics have suggested that when the Fed made the decision to pay interest on reserves held at the banks, that a that actually exacerbated the problem of banks not lending to quality customers. Um, certainly, even in my community, there were an awful lot of what I would consider to be worthy uh, people who could not get loans for both home, new home purchases as well as uh, expansion of businesses. That it was certainly in the bank's best interest to just take the money that the Fed was paying them excess reserves and not subject themselves to the risk associated with lending with the possibility of that loan going bad. Uh, can you respond to those critics who would take that sure. position? Thank you. Well, this, the simple one is that interest on reserves is just 25 basis points, and no interest on reserves would be zero basis points. So we're not paying very much, and 
uh, it doesn't seem likely that uh, there's a huge batch of demand for lending out there, uh, just a quarter point below where current lending rates are. Uh, the broader, um, broader sort of answer is that um, even if we didn't pay interest on reserves, there would be a market for lending and borrowing reserves. So they could, instead of lending it to us, they could lend it to another bank. And so the, that there would be a price out there that would constitute the opportunity cost for them of holding reserves versus lending it out. As an audience, I see nods, understands opportunity cost. Um, and so it, the, the analytics are going to work the same whether we pay interest on reserves or not. In the back and the right there. Uh, yes, this is a, more of an educational question, I guess, like the, the woman up ahead. Um, you had mentioned uh, Arthur Burns, and um, Arthur Burns uh, faced a real credibility problem. He, you know, he, he, he got to the point where he said, you know, I can let the, I can let the economy tank uh, in order to, you know, to, to fight inflation, but I'm not going to do it. Um, it took Paul Volcker to do that. I think right now it seems like the, the, the Fed has a real credibility problem and as an educator as an educator how do i how do i tell my students uh that monetary policy uh still ha you know has an, an effective role uh, uh you know we've already disparaged fiscal policy mm -hmm. uh and and you know uh, it seems to me and i think this conference is wonderful for this i've, I've been here four times now and i've listened to us talk through the, you know, the variations of our economy in the last six years and that's that's been pretty dramatic but um you know they're running out of bullets and 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 i'm curious how are you going to sell this to an american populace or even how am i going to sell it to my to my students uh what the fed's actions are um so you've asked about credibility and you've talked about arthur burns and you brought up the example of paul volcker and, and those are those are great instances to build uh, to build some comments on uh, credibility around um, Paul Volcker talked tough about inflation and took tough action. Arthur Burns talked tough about inflation. Uh, there are times when actions speak louder than words, and this was our problem. I mean, we wanted low inflation all throughout this period and articulated that. Um, but market participants watching our actions, watching what we did, how much ease we provided, those inflation expectations crept steadily up over the late 60s and then just blew out in the 70s. Um, and that was a process of them learning from our actions and learning to discount what we said. Paul Volcker took strong action and that's what built the foundation of our credibility. But it wasn't complete and it's still not 100% complete. It took successive episodes in the mid 80s where there'd be, there'd be an inflation scare that would show up with a, a sudden rise in longer-term interest rates. 10, 10 years, 30-year bond rate would go up, building in new inflation expectations. And the Fed would have to react and tighten policy. Bond rates would come down, our credibility be reestablished. 1994, I mentioned earlier, um, uh, the economy was recovering, growth had picked up, inflation hadn't picked up yet. For the first time, we moved fairly aggressively before inflation rose. We didn't wait for inflation to rise the way we did in the 70s on 60s. And uh, that 
that did a lot to cement our credibility. And you'll notice inflation, inflation expectations came down in the mid-90s and stayed fairly low. We had inflation under 2% uh, for a long stretch in the 90s um, in the early part of this decade. But, um, you know, there's, there's always just little whiffs. You know, I met 2008 was an example where a commodity price boom uh, led, led to rises in measures of inflation expectations, both um, the, the tips, the market-based measures, and uh, survey measures. Both crept up to sort of look like they were threatening to break out of recent trading ranges. Um, and I, I think those are sensitive signals, and we, we showed that we were going to react to that. We stopped easing. Um, and I think it's, it just takes vigilance going forward to maintain that credibility. Well, as opposed to a couple of the other questioners, um, I guess my concern is Krugman the other day in his blog showed a, a graph of the um, uh, core inflation rate, and it exactly paralleled Japan's as Japan descended into its lost decade. So I, I'm more concerned about deflation than I am about inflation in, in the uh, near term. Uh, and, um, and with the Republican Congress uh, coming in uh, that wants to um, uh, basically, um, uh, he's going to endorse uh, perhaps um, um, a, a uh, fiscal policy that will be uh, um, uh, the opposite of, you know, going to tighten up uh, policy there. Um, are, we cons are you concerned about deflation, and what are your thoughts on, on that going forward? Um, so deflation is something that w that's gotten a lot of discussion both inside and outside the Federal Reserve um, over the last couple of years, um, especially with, as you said, core inflation, but also broader inflation indexes uh, coming down. Um, and Japan is the natural uh, analog to look to. Other countries have experienced deflation problems. We had a major deflation problem in the 1930s, where the price level fell by 28% over the course of three years. So. I don't think that deflation is a major risk for us right now. Uh, that's my assessment. Um, so I, I mentioned 1959 to 1965 when inflation was about where it was now, both core and overall. And we didn't go into an deflationary spiral. Um, I'd mentioned that Jap there were some notably different things about Japan that, that stymied uh, that economy's growth. Um, and uh, the major one was the length of time that they took to resolve banking, um, banking sector problems. I, I mentioned earlier this, um, this characteristic of recessions, that they really are times where what's really going on is um, reallocating resources from some sectors to others. And the faster you handle a banking crisis, the faster that happens. So in our experience, in the early 1990s, after the savings and loan and banking debacle, um, we, had, we formed the Resolution Trust Corporation. We went in. We failed, seized failed banks. We took out the assets. We went around the country, hired, you know, rented hotel rooms, held auctions, and got rid of it. It added out to somebody who could try and do some, who wanted to try and do something with it. In contrast, in Japan, they kept the loans on the books. They, the, there was pressure to forbear. They took their time writing down those loans, and as a result, they took time, their time separating entrepreneurs and business and managers from capital, 
and that slowed down the process of redeploying the capital to more effective uses. So I think there's good reasons um, that, uh, you know, you can always find something. You know, you take the last five years of data, there's always some country in the world that looks looked like that at one point. And so you pick the one that has the forecast uh, that you like. Um, you can always do that, but I, I, I just don't think it's a major risk at this point. Over here. And then we should probably wrap up. Good evening. Good evening. Um, my understanding about part of the reason how we got into the financial mess that we're in is, and you had mentioned the commercial paper issue, uh, was one piece of a whole credit market that just sort of froze up. And um, banks were not lending money. Uh, businesses like Circuit City and Linens and things shut down partly because they could not borrow to finance their inventory and so forth. Um, my understanding is that we're still sort of in that situation, that banks are not really lending the way they should, particularly to small businesses. And, and we're now seeing um, more and more small businesses who are really struggling and, and closing and shutting. So if our economy is to recover, we have to free up money for lending. What is what is the uh, forecast on that? Thank you. Um, so this is a, a sort of a contentious issue. I, as I go around the district and talk to people, um, I hear plenty from people who, who say that, that banks aren't lending to businesses like them or they know people who've been turned down who deserve a loan. And we, we talk to bankers as well, however, and, and a lot of them say they're, they're looking for every creditworthy customer they can. We always ask people to, you know, give us examples. We'll track them down, try and find out what's going on. Um, but um, bankers, do, bankers have every incentive to find creditworthy borrowers to, to, to do business with. Um, a lot of banks have been uh, hit with losses that they didn't anticipate. Uh, and this is, um, this is true of large banks with um, their mortgage-backed securities-related activities capital market activities, but then in the last two years, uh, community banks with um, their commercial real estate lending. And their losses they've suffered, the banks have suffered, have diminishes their capital ratios, and they, they have to bring, they have to restore the health to their balance sheet, and they, they either have to shrink their balance sheet or raise capital, and it's hard to raise capital if you're a risky bank, you know, if your capital ratio is low, because you're kind of a risky investment. It's sort of expensive to do. Now, this effect has been uneven across community banks. Um, community banks, uh, you know, are something that's easy to, very, to generalize about, but there's a lot of differentiation in the sort of the skill with which they executed strategies, the skill with which they selected strategies. So, for example, some you know banks that stuck to their knitting, underwrote, you know, did their underwriting kind of conservatively, came through it pretty well. Banks that did things like. Um, go into commercial real estate lending five states away, you know, in, in Florida, they didn't do so well. So there's a lot of variation across banks. And I tell people that there's some banks that are very definitely trying to shed borrowing customers, but there's other banks that are looking to pick up customers from other competitors if they can. Now's a time that pays more than any to shop around uh, for a bank. 
Well, thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience. Wish you all the best in the days ahead.